0: Last year, a bill to end qualified immunity became the first piece of legislation to enjoy tripartisan support. Amid growing concerns over police brutality and what seems to be a slow creep from qualified to absolute immunity for those responsible, voices from across the political spectrum have begun urging for change.
1: What is qualified immunity, and where did it come from? The story begins with a case from the 1960s and one dissenting justice who ultimately was proven right about the wrong thing? I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on
0: DIST, we're taking on Pearson versus Ray.
2: The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent.
0: For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion,
2: I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent.
1: I dissent. What is qualified immunity? It's a defense that public officials can invoke in lawsuits to shield themselves from liability for violating people's civil rights. Let's back up.
0: Typically, if a state actor violates your rights, you can sue them for damages, thanks to one of our most important civil rights statutes, 42 United States Code, Section 1983. Or what we in the civil rights litigation biz fondly call Section 1983. So let's start there, and I know just the guy to explain it.
2: So I'm Clark Neely. I am Senior Vice President at the Cato Institute with responsibility for all of our legal studies. So Section 1983 is the kind of colloquial term that we use today for um, a federal statute that was enacted in 1871 and was known variously as the First Civil Rights Act, the Enforcement Act, or the Ku Klux Klan Act. The operative text of that law has remained unchanged since 1871, and here's what it provides. Any state actor, meaning any police officer or other government official employed by the state or a local government, shall be liable to the person injured for the deprivation of any right. It is, on its face, a rather broad and sweeping remedial scheme very clearly designed to ensure that people whose civil rights are violated by state and local government officials have the ability to obtain a remedy for that violation in federal court.
0: Section 1983 was passed by the Reconstruction Congress in the wake of the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. Those amendments gave the federal government a strong role in protecting civil liberties
1: from violation by the states. Even after the end of the Civil War, black citizens and sympathizers continued to be deprived of the full enjoyment of their constitutional liberties. So Congress used its new powers under the Reconstruction Amendments to pass Section 1983 and give people whose rights were violated by state actors recourse in federal court. Section
0: 1983 has become a vital tool for vindicating civil rights. And it's the basis for some of the most important Supreme Court cases in history, including Brown v. Board of Education. But the doctrine of qualified immunity offers defendants a defense, even if they do in fact violate people's rights. And even if they do so intentionally and maliciously, if that violation was not clearly established by law at the time it occurred. Here's one law professor summing the defense up.
3: My name is Joanna Schwartz. I'm a law professor at UCLA School of Law. Qualified immunity is a uh, legal defense that was created by the Supreme Court in 1967 that protects police and other government officials from liability in damages cases if uh, the right that they violated has not been clearly established, which has been interpreted by the Supreme Court in recent years to require a prior court decision um, holding virtually identical conduct to be unconstitutional.
1: Proponents say that public officials need immunity in order to be free to vigorously carry out their duties. Opponents say that qualified immunity is unsound public policy, unsupported by the text or the intent of Section 1983, and over the years has turned into near-absolute immunity. Or, as Clark, an outspoken opponent, put it,
2: I consider it to be the cornerstone of our near-zero accountability policy for law enforcement in this country.
1: So now we know what qualified immunity is. But where did it come from? Enter Pearson versus Ray.
0: Pearson versus Ray was one of the first cases to develop the doctrine of qualified immunity under Section 1983. Here's what happened. A group of clergymen were making their way across the country on a prayer pilgrimage to promote racial equality and integration. At a bus terminal in Mississippi, they stopped to purchase coffee at a segregated counter. A group of policemen arrested the clergyman under the pretext that they were breaching the peace. And at trial, the state
1: court judge found the clergyman guilty. But that decision was reversed on appeal and the charges were dropped. The clergyman then went to federal court to sue the policeman and the state court judge under Section 1983. On the basis that they had intentionally violated the clergyman's constitutional rights. A federal appeals court held that the judge had absolute immunity from suit under Section 1983. That is, judges could never be held liable under Section 1983. And while policemen had a good-faith defense rooted in common law, they did not enjoy that same defense under Section 1983. Because in the intervening years, a court had ruled that similar conduct was unconstitutional, the policemen were in fact liable for violating the clergyman's rights. The Supreme Court granted cert to resolve whether and under what circumstances judges and police were immune from suit under Section 1983.
0: According to counsel for the clergyman, this was the very conduct that Section 1983 was meant to provide recourse for. Congress knew that state officials, including both policemen and judges, were denying people their rights and therefore it sought to hold them accountable. Here's the clergyman's attorney arguing in front of the Supreme Court.
2: They were concerned about the phony justice, the sham justice, the the, the police who arrest
3: and the judges who convict when there is no evidence of any, any, any wrongdoing.
1: The justices, however, were very concerned about the prospect of judges being sued under Section 1983. Here's Justice Hugo Black. Is it your argument that every judge who turns somebody loose can be sued and has no immunity? No, Your Honor. I would say
2: that the only judge who is liable is one who convicts with with, not intending to
3: deprive him of people. All of them could be sued for it, and you'd have to prove his motive? Yes, Your Honor. That would be true. That's the argument.
0: For what it's worth, not even counsel for the government thought that judges should be absolutely immune from suit. She explained that at common law, judges were not immune in cases where there was actual corruption. And the same should be the case under section 1983. She also thought that police officers enjoyed immunity. At common law, she said, probable cause was a defense against false arrest, even if the suspect was later found innocent. The police officers in this case should likewise enjoy a good faith defense under section 1983, even if the clergyman had later been found innocent. She also made a policy
3: argument. The policeman doesn't remember him. He hasn't got down and gotten witnesses and getting names, getting ready for a lawsuit three or four years from now. He doesn't know
2: uh, what the fine points of the law. He's got to use his best judgment in whether or not there's violence about to occur.
1: In an 8-1 opinion authored by Chief Justice Earl Warren. The court ruled that there was immunity for both judges and police officers. Judges, Warren said, enjoy absolute immunity, purportedly not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the public who have an interest in judicial independence. And such immunity was based in common law, which section 1983 did not intend to displace.
0: The court agreed with the state's counsel that police officers also enjoyed some limited, that is qualified immunity rooted in the common law. It didn't matter that ultimately the statute the policemen had acted under was held unconstitutional if they reasonably believed it to be valid at the time they acted. Under common law, what mattered was whether police officers acted in good faith. And that defense, the majority said, was incorporated into section 1983.
1: The lone dissenter was Justice William O. Douglas, a justice who frequently disagreed with the other justices, dissenting in almost 40% of cases, more than half of the time writing only for himself. Wild Bill Douglas is basically the mascot of this podcast.
0: Justice Douglas disagreed vigorously that judicial immunity was supported by common law or by prior opinions or by good policy. Douglas began his dissent by saying, I do not think that all judges under all circumstances, no matter how outrageous their conduct, are immune from suit under Section 1983. He ended his dissent by noting that the plight of the oppressed is indeed serious and... Congress, I think, concluded that the evils of allowing intentional, knowing deprivations of civil rights to go unredressed far outweighed the speculative inhibiting effects which might attend an inquiry into a judicial deprivation of civil rights.
1: Here's Professor Schwartz on the debate between the majority and Justice Douglas.
3: Qualified immunity is intended to balance the interests in holding police and other government officials accountable when they do wrong, uh, but also to protect officers uh, from the distractions and burdens of being sued when they act um, reasonably um, and uh, and insubstantial cases are, are brought against them. Um, and I think that the dissent in Pearson and much of the debate about qualified immunity is really a debate about how strong... Um, a power civil rights lawsuits should have, um, and uh, you know the the extent to which they are achieving you know valuable uh, compensatory and deterrence goals, and the extent to which you know they're they're too strong. And so I think you see that debate in Pearson and really in all of the qualified immunity cases that come after. Wild Bill
1: thought civil rights lawsuits under Section 1983 ought to have a lot of power. The majority thought it ought to have less.
0: Douglas was wrong about a lot of things, including his own autobiography, which it turned out was rife with lies or exaggerations. But he may have been right, at least about judicial immunity. His dissent makes a powerful argument based in the legislative history that Section 1983 was never intended to incorporate any common law defenses for judges. In fact, some legislators objected to Section 1983 exactly because they feared that judges would be liable.
2: You know, Justice Douglas makes an extremely powerful point in his dissent in the Pearson case. And, and what he says, in essence, is, look, start with the text of the statute. And it doesn't say anything about qualified immunity, about absolute immunity for prosecutors or judges or anybody else. Um, but of course, then the, the majority kind of goes off road, you know, and looks back and says, well, you know, we had these background defenses and we should, you know, assume that Congress meant to put them in the statute. But they omit. Oh, key fact, and that is that all of this was discussed and debated by Congress when they were considering Section 1983, and people who objected to Section 1983 objected to it because it would make judges and, by extension, police officers liable, and people who supported Section 1983 supported it because it would make judges and police liable. Because why? Because that's exactly the nature of the evil that was at hand. It was, and I'll, I'll quote from you know from Justice Douglas. He says. The position that Congress did not intend to change the common law rule of judicial immunity ignores the fact that every member of Congress who spoke to the issue assumed that the words of the statute meant what they said and that judges would be liable. Why? Precisely because judges were a part of the problem. Judges were violating people's civil rights in the South, uh, and and it, it seems ineluctably clear that Congress intended to get at that misconduct with Section 1983.
1: The problem is that same objection applies to immunity for police officers, yet Justice Douglas made no mention of this, ostensibly agreeing with the majority on this point and allowing the police officers to avoid liability for their conduct.
0: Still, it was a pretty mild air at the time as far as it goes.
2: And the way it boils down is that if the government official was enforcing a law that they they understood at the time to be constitutional, but that law is later determined to be unconstitutional, they should not be held liable for their enforcement activities during the period of time when the law was understood to be constitutional. I think that's a fairly unobjectionable policy, but it is still a policy. That doesn't comport with the language of Section 1983, but it really would only cover a a tiny handful uh, of cases.
0: Pearson was just the beginning of the long, twisted qualified immunity journey, however. And by the end of it, it would turn out that Douglas was right about Section 1983's text purpose and inevitable effect, just about the wrong defendant.
1: Qualified immunity has changed significantly since Pearson, starting with Harlow versus Fitzgerald, in which the court held that government officials generally are shielded from liability for civil damages insofar as their conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. Here's Professor Schwartz on the change.
3: Pearson versus Ray essentially said that there was a good faith defense that uh, would shield officers and other government officials from liability if they were acting in good faith, uh, albeit unconstitutionally. Uh, In 1982, in a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court changed dramatically what the standard was for qualified immunity. It no longer mattered what the officer's intention was, whether he was acting in good faith or not. Uh, the, The question for qualified immunity became whether the officer violated what the Supreme Court called clearly established law. And what the court was trying to do is to create an objective standard instead of a subjective standard for qualified immunity. The Supreme Court was concerned that officers would have to be deposed and perhaps go to trial before it could be resolved, uh, whether they were acting in good faith. And turning it into an objective standard, whether the right was clearly established, could, in the Supreme Court's mind, allow insubstantial cases to be dismissed more quickly and take the burden uh, off the shoulders of of government officials uh, of having to be deposed and stand trial.
1: The problem is that this standard eviscerates liability for a vast amount of constitutional violations, including bad faith ones. Here's Clark again.
2: It doesn't matter whether the, the action was in good faith or not. doesn't even matter whether the, the enforcement uh, or the, the law enforcement official knew that what they were doing was wrong. It only matters whether there's a pre-existing case uh, on point.
0: You can already see the enforcement power
1: of Section 1983 start to break down a little.
3: But all of this just opened up more questions. Here's Professor Schwartz. So Pearson was in 1967, said you have to have this good faith uh, defense. 1982 in Harlow versus Fitzgerald, the court says, forget about good faith, we're focused on whether officers had violated clearly established law. And then the question became, what is clearly established law? What does it mean to clearly establish the law? And so since 1982, the Supreme Court has offered varying answers um, to that question. And there's really two different prongs of it. One is, do you need a court case to clearly establish the law? Um, and the Supreme Court has said, yes, in all but exceptional circumstances where the constitutional violation is obvious, you do need a court opinion. Uh, I guess the next question is which court's opinion. And the Supreme Court hasn't been particularly clear about that either. And then the third part of the question, which gets to Molinix, is how similar does that prior case have to be in order to clearly establish the law?
0: Molinix was an even more dramatic turn for qualified immunity.
3: Mullenix versus Luna is a case where a, uh, a man was trying to flee the police, trying to avoid a misdemeanor warrant, and he was traveling along rural roads in Texas. There weren't any other people around or any other cars. And what the law enforcement agencies that were involved in this in this effort decided to do is to put spike strips down on the street so that uh, Lahia would run over the spike strips, his tires would get punctured, and then he would roll to a stop. But then there was an officer from uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety, Chad Mullinex, who decided that he was going to do his own his own thing. He decided that he was going to stand on a bridge, highway overpass, and shoot at Lahia's car as it was driving by, which he did. Uh, even though a supervisor told him not to. And he hit Lahia and Lahia died. Mullenix, uh, shortly after he killed Lahia, said to his supervisor, how's that for proactive? And it was a response to a conversation that the supervisor had had with Mullenix earlier in the day when he told Mullenix that he was engaging in behavior not becoming of his office and urged him to be more proactive. So the trial court, which was in Texas, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals denied Mullenix's request to get qualified immunity. But then the case went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted cert and reversed and held that the officers were entitled to qualified immunity. And they looked at prior court cases where officers had shot into cars and it was ruled unconstitutional to do so in some of those cases. And the Supreme Court said the facts of those prior cases are not similar enough to the facts in Mullinix versus Luna. In one, the car was driving at a different speed, and another, it was going towards an officer instead of away. And there's a hazy line between excessive and uh, constitutional force. And this case, you know, was it would not have been clear to any officer that it was unconstitutional to do what he did, and so the court granted qualified immunity. And again, because an officer's good faith plays no role in the qualified immunity analysis, the statement, how's that for proactive, didn't play any role because that's that's not relevant to the qualified immunity analysis.
1: In practice, Mullinex requires plaintiffs not just to identify a case with an analogous rule, but a case with identical facts. The Reconstruction Congress is rolling in its grave. To see how it plays out in practice, consider a few cases. In Baxter v. Harris, Nashville police officers released a police dog on a suspect despite that he had surrendered and was sitting with his hands in the air. The man, who was injured by the dog, sued for compensation under Section 1983. To satisfy the clearly established law requirement, he pointed to a lawsuit where policemen had released a dog on a man who had surrendered by lying down. Here's Clark.
2: He sued for violation of this Fourth Amendment right against unreasonable force. One might have thought the good news for him is that there was a nearly identical case on point, which there isn't usually, but this time there was. Uh, But again, it was another pursuit case. And um, in that case, the suspect, when he realized he'd been caught, he lay down on the ground with his hands at his side and uh, in a position of surrender. And yeah, the Sixth Circuit held that there is enough of a difference between those two cases. One suspect lying down on the ground in a position of surrender and one suspect sitting up in a position of surrender. That makes them different enough that the law was not clearly established, that you are not supposed to sick a police dog on an unresisting suspect who has already sur- surrendered. And the officers were granted qualified immunity in Baxter v. Bracey. And the court allowed that, that they took it up. It was an ACLU case, very well litigated, and the Supreme Court denied cert on that and allowed that decision to stand.
0: Or take the case of McCoy v. Alamu, where a prisoner sued a correctional officer for spraying him in the face with the chemical agent without provocation. Even though the court ruled that spraying the chemicals violated the Eighth Amendment, you know, the one that prohibits cruel and unusual treatment, it dismissed the case because, quote, it was not beyond debate that it
1: did, so the law wasn't clearly established. Or consider Taylor v. Riojas, where the plaintiff alleged that for six full days, correctional officers confined him in a pair of cells, one covered floor to ceiling in massive amounts of feces, and the other with sewage coming up through the drain. Fearing that his food and water would be contaminated, Taylor did not eat or drink for nearly four days, and with no clothes, he was forced to sleep naked in the sewage. The Fifth Circuit granted qualified immunity on the basis that the law wasn't clearly established, that prisoners couldn't be housed in cells teeming with human waste, quote, for only six days. In that case, the Supreme Court eventually summarily reversed. That means the justices reversed without any briefing or argument but not because it disagreed with the standard for qualified immunity.
0: It simply concluded that, quote, no reasonable correctional officer could have concluded that such behavior was constitutional, thus carving out
1: a new exception for qualified immunity. Clark also mentioned a recent example out of the Tenth Circuit.
2: In a nutshell, what happened was that a man saw some police officers uh, effecting a, a, what he seemed to him a, a rather violent arrest, so he began recording it uh, with a tablet. That he had with him, the police noticed this. They came over, started harassing him. Uh, you know, insisted that he hand over the tablet. Tried to delete the video, but but were unsuccessful. And so, he sued, arguing that the police had violated his constitutional right to record police officers in public, which I think is a fascinating question in and of itself. Uh, the Supreme Court has not yet weighed in on that, but four or five circuit courts have, and every single circuit court that has looked at the question has said, yes, clearly you do have a constitutional right to record police in public. The interesting twist in this case was that these officers had been trained, and they testified that they had been trained, that there is a right to record police in public and that they must not interfere with people's ability to do so. So they knew it. The 10th Circuit nevertheless granted qualified immunity. Why? Because the Tenth Circuit had not yet weighed in on this issue, and the mere fact that four or five other circuits had said that there's a, a right to record police in public was not sufficient to clearly establish that right in the Tenth Circuit. So you've got, you've got about half of the federal courts of appeals saying there's a right to record police in public. You've got officers who testify that they were trained that there is such a right. And that they should not violate it. And the 10th Circuit still grants qualified immunity, not because you know they needed to be protected about making any sort of snap judgment in the field, which is what we're always told when people try to defend qualified immunity, but literally because there was this just tiny little uh doctrinal crack in the system that enabled these officers to weasel out of the obviously uh improper conduct that they had engaged in and it, and to put a cherry on top of this you know ice cream sundae of injustice. The court did not even resolve the underlying merits question of whether there is now in the Tenth Circuit a right to record police in public because the Supreme Court in a 2009 case told lower courts that they can take this sequence in whichever order they want. So you don't have to first decide, is there a constitutional right? And if so, second, was it clearly established? You can take that in whatever order you want. And then guess what happens? The doctrine doesn't develop. So guess what? We still don't know whether you have a constitutional right to record police In public in the 10th Circuit, and it's very difficult to to see how we're going to find out.
0: Judge Willett had a a great quote about that in a Fifth Circuit opinion where he's talking about that sort of catch 22.
2: Yeah, Judge Willett did a really nice job on this sort of stagnation of doctrine point in a case called Zeday out of the Fifth Circuit, which was a case where, without any judicial authorization or supervision, a bunch of law enforcement agents ransacked a doctor's office and went through his patient files just on their own initiative. Um, and the Fifth Circuit granted qualified immunity because guess what, that exact case isn't on point. And uh, Judge Willett did write, look, this, is, this just can't be right.
1: Here's an excerpt. Many courts grant immunity without first determining whether the challenged behavior violates the Constitution. They avoid scrutinizing the alleged offense by skipping to the simpler second prong, no factually analogous precedent. Foregoing a naughty constitutional inquiry makes for easier sledding, no doubt. But the inexorable result is constitutional stagnation, fewer courts establishing law at all, much less clearly doing so. Section 1983 meets Catch-22. Plaintiffs must produce precedent even as fewer courts are producing precedent. Important constitutional questions go unanswered precisely because no one's answered them before. Courts then rely on that judicial silence to conclude, there's no equivalent case on the books. No precedent equals no clearly established law equals no liability. In a Sherian stairwell, heads government wins, tails plaintiff loses. A beautiful way of putting something tragic. In short, modern qualified immunity doctrine suffers many flaws. For one, it doesn't seem to be supported by legislative intent. As Clark pointed out, those who have embraced it are basically saying, Hey,
2: you know what, let's do? Let's ignore what everybody in Congress said and instead just impute to them an intent to insert or to include a common law defense that may or may not have existed back then. And we'll just skip over the fact that everybody who talked about this law on the floor of the House or the Senate seemed to agree that it would result in liability for judges and, and, and presumably other government officials.
1: Second, it's drifted far afield from common law. Here's Joanna.
3: Even people who believe that there is a common law case for qualified immunity, meaning that there was some legal basis for qualified immunity protection in 1871 when Section 1983 became law, even those people would not claim that qualified immunity doctrine as it's currently configured uh, bears any resemblance to what might have been in existence in 1871.
0: And last, it's not supported by sound public policy.
3: When I studied police misconduct lawsuit payouts in 81 law enforcement agencies across the country over a six-year period, I found that 99.98% of the dollars were paid by local governments. 0.02% of the dollars were paid by officers in two jurisdictions, and the average amount they paid was $2,000. So the idea that officers are going to be bankrupted um, by qualified immunities elimination just does not take into account the widespread indemnification of officers. I've also looked at the role that qualified immunity plays in litigation. And I found that it doesn't actually uh, shield many officers from the burdens of participating in discovery and trial. And the final one that that often comes up is this need to uh, encourage officers to act decisively and uh, to um, encourage people to want to be government officials. And I have a lot of sympathy for um, police departments that are trying to hire and retain officers right now. But I don't think that the presence or absence of qualified immunity is the key issue there. Uh, when you look at discussions with law enforcement officials about the challenges of hiring and retaining officers, really what they talk about is the, the tensions Um, With police and uh, communities of color, high profile incidents of police violence, um, as well as uh, competition from other types of employment, um, siphoning officers away. Here's Clark again.
2: I actually think that the qualified immunity doctrine is almost certainly having precisely the opposite of its intended effect. If it was intended to kind of increase officer morale and make sure they feel better about doing their job Uh, by giving them space to make decisions in the field, it has become such an exaggerated version of that and it so often lets obviously rights, rights violating police off the hook. I think it's actually infantilizing police and I think it is absolutely undermining public trust and confidence in the institution of law enforcement. So I think that both Congress and the Constitution contemplate that government officials should get their feedback primarily from citizen juries assessing the legality Uh, of their conduct and their exposure to damages. What the Supreme Court has done is ensure that government officials mostly get their feedback from a relentlessly government favoring judiciary that bends over backwards the way the 10th Circuit did in that Fraser v. Evans case to find a way to let them off the hook.
0: Given all that, wasn't Douglas kind of right? In fact, he was kind of prescient. He said all of this in his Pearson dissent about judicial immunity. He was right, just about the wrong thing, at the wrong time, which is a very Wild Bill Douglas thing to do.
1: So how does qualified immunity figure into current debates about criminal justice reform?
2: People perceive and I think it's very increasingly obvious that they perceive that there is a massive differential in terms of the amount of accountability to which we ourselves as ordinary citizens are held by members of law enforcement versus the amount of accountability to which they are held. And, 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 and to just, again, top that off, um, the court gets it exactly backwards. It should be police and prosecutors who are held to a very, very high standard of accountability, both because of the incredible amount of power and discretion that they wield, but also because by virtue of their training, they are at least in theory supposed to have a better grasp of what the law is than ordinary people. Uh, but, But as in so many things having to do with qualified immunity, the Supreme Court gets this exactly and disastrously wrong. And the result is that instead of being held to a comparatively high level of accountability, police and prosecutors and other law enforcement officials are held to an astonishingly low level of accountability, while at the same time, all of us ordinary regular citizens, we can be arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and even incarcerated for engaging in conduct that we didn't know was unlawful. And no one sheds a tear for us. At least no one on the judiciary sheds a tear for us at the same time that they're wringing their hands about the possibility, uh, you know, of some police officer being held liable uh, for engaging in conduct that he didn't know was improper. I don't think it adds up whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Ignorance of the law is no excuse unless you're a man with a gun and the full power of the state behind you.
2: Right. And, you know, ask yourself, does that sound right? Does that seem like that's resonating with the general public these days?
0: I mentioned to Clark that depending on whether you're reading the majority or the dissent, the facts might sound more or less sympathetic. And he said,
2: I think it's easy, you know, to to kind of poo-poo some of these cases if you don't know the people involved. But when you put yourself in the situation and think, what if you were standing there watching that person, you know, a loved one? And unfortunately, this happens, you know, a lot. Um, Police are called. Police actually spend more of their time responding to incidents, things like, arguments or mental health episodes than they do investigating actual crimes. So it's a we rely on them to do a lot of this. Uh, And there was a case out of the Fifth Circuit just recently where uh, police were called to the home of a man who was having a mental health episode. He was, uh, you know, making some suicidal remarks. He retreated to his bedroom with a can of gasoline and, and apparently had splashed some of it on himself. The officers went into the bedroom and one of them began to unholster his taser. The other officer said, no, 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 we've been trained that you don't shoot somebody with a taser who's holding a can of gasoline, especially if they might have it on themselves, because you might light them on fire. Two of the other officers then did precisely that. They, they shot the guy with their taser. They did light him on fire and they did burn him to death. So they showed up and caused exactly the worst case scenario that could have happened. They showed up and ensured that that happened. That case went up to the Fifth Circuit. And what do you suppose the Fifth Circuit did? It granted qualified immunity. Uh, Now, the plaintiffs in that case are seeking uh, rehearing, uh, and I hope they get it, Uh, and I hope that case gets a lot of publicity because that, I don't know anybody who looks at what happened there and says to themselves, yep, that sounds about right.
1: So, our guests think qualified immunity contributes to popular outrage over police brutality, but do they think getting rid of it would have any practical effect on police behavior?
2: I do, and I think they know it, which is the reason why they make preserving it their number one priority
1: but it may be just the beginning of the solution.
3: I don't think that ending qualified immunity is a silver bullet that would usher in a completely new um, uh, golden age of police reform. But I do think that eliminating qualified immunity would do several important things. One, it would clarify the law. Right now, um, the Supreme Court has told lower courts that they can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether... Um, the Constitution was violated. Um, And what that ends up meaning is that there's uh, a lot of areas of the law where it is not clear um, whether the Constitution is violated. I also think that eliminating qualified immunity um, would Reduce the time and complexity and cost of bringing civil rights cases. Um, And that would mean, I think, that more lawyers would be willing to take these cases. But there's still a lot of other ways in which officers uh, and law enforcement and government more generally are insulated from the consequences of their actions. And all of those other protections, whether it's the challenges of finding a lawyer, the challenges of pleading a case, the constitutional standards themselves, um, the difficulty of convincing a jury um, uh, and being sympathetic to plaintiffs and civil rights cases, all of those challenges um, would continue to exist.
0: So what's the potential for change? The potential of restoring this version of Section 1983
1: to this? At least some of the justices have signaled uncomfortableness with the state of qualified immunity. Justices Scalia and Kennedy went on the bench, indicated they thought the doctrine had strayed from its common law origins. And sitting justices have also been sending signals. In Baxter v. Bracy, the case where the Fifth Circuit ruled that case law involving unleashing dogs on those who surrender while lying down is not relevant to cases involving unleashing dogs on those who surrender while sitting, Justice Thomas dissented from the court's refusal to hear the case. He wrote to say that the court had long departed from text, intent, and common law, and, quote, at least ought to return to the approach of asking whether immunity was historically accorded the relevant official in an analogous situation at common law.
0: Justice Sotomayor also wrote a dissent, joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in Casela versus Hughes. She said of the majority, The decision is not just wrong on the law. It also sends an alarming signal to law enforcement officers and the public. It tells officers that they can shoot first and think later. And it tells the public that palpably unreasonable conduct will go unpunished because there is nothing right or just under the law about this. I respectfully dissent.
2: So it's kind of one of these interesting situations where you've got, uh, you know, sort of the so-called conservative wing of the Supreme Court or at least some of its members expressing concern about qualified immunity from a legitimacy standpoint. Uh, You know, is this a, 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 you know, doctrinally legitimate doctrine? To which the answer is obviously no. And then you've got members, at least some members of the, you know, sort of left wing of the Supreme Court who have begun to recognize just the sheer amount of injustice that the qualified immunity doctrine causes. And um, it's it, it'll be interesting to see if, if, you know, if we get the requisite number of justices um, to take up qualified immunity and give it a fresh look.
1: So, does public outrage make the court more or less likely to resolve some of these issues?
2: That is a really, really challenging question. And, and I, I think that, uh, let me say that anybody should be hesitant to stake out too much turf, but since you asked me to speculate, I will speculate. What, one thing that we knew throughout the entire term, last, last Supreme Court term, was that qualified immunity was on the justices' radar. And the way we knew that was that they kept sequencing cert petitions involving challenges to qualified immunity so that they would all become, you know, ripe and ready for conference on the same day. And by the time, by, by the time we got to May, so close to the end of the term, there were like 10 or a dozen cert petitions, high quality cert petitions, involving challenges to qualified immunity that were essentially all available for conference on the same day. That's a lot of case of cert petitions to have on the same subject matter and it didn't happen by accident, they coordinated it. Then we got George Floyd. George Floyd happened in May. The killing of George Floyd happened and, you know, uh, cities erupted. And almost overnight, Congress was suddenly having a serious discussion about police reform and qualified immunity was front and center in that discussion. My guess is that at least some of the justices perceived that Congress was now at least aware of and perhaps serious about taking action in this area and that it would be either unhelpful or ill-advised for the court to get involved at the same time, so that you've now got two different branches trying to solve the same problem in tandem, and that a better approach would be to kind of stand back, let the Congress do whatever it was going to do, which, by the way, turned out to be nothing, um, at least last year, and then, you know, kind of wait and see what it looked like when the dust settles. So what might the court do? I think for now, all it's going to do is what we've seen it do, which is try to take sort of the worst edges off of it to, um, to reverse the most embarrassing cases
0: and plaintiffs in Section 1983 cases will suffer.
2: The Probably the number one effect that qualified immunity has on our system is discouraging otherwise meritorious cases from being filed. There have been surveys, Joanna Schwartz has referred to this in her research, as have others. There have been surveys of plaintiff's lawyers who are asked whether qualified immunity is a factor for them in deciding whether to accept a case and proceed. And every single one of them, not surprisingly, says, yeah, of course it is. It's a huge factor, right? Um, and think about, let me give you an example um, and put yourself in the position of you know, a, a civil rights lawyer. This, this case happens to, uh, or potential case happens to be in Georgia. Um, a man was, um, was at home, and one of his neighbors called the police because his dog was barking and they thought it was being threatening. The police arrived and do, unfortunately, what police will often do in these situations, which is shot and killed the dog. A detective arrived and told the man that he had to cut the head off of his own recently shot to death dog so they could take it to the state lab to test for rabies. And when he said absolutely not, the detective threatened to arrest him if he refused, right? So now imagine that that, that man comes to your office as a civil rights attorney and says, "I, you know, I want to know if we can bring this case. Do you think you're going to find that exact fact pattern on the books in the 11th Circuit? I sure hope
1: not. And I really doubt it. And while according to Professor Schwartz, Section 1983 isn't the perfect remedy for constitutional violations, she admits it has the potential to be pretty
3: darn good. I think that... Section 1983 suits seeking damages um, are a highly imperfect tool um, to achieve the intended pair goals of compensation and deterrence. I also think they're the best uh, options that we have um, in this moment. Um, The other Contenders, at least from a deterrence perspective, are criminal prosecution and internal affairs uh, investigation and discipline. Um, Both are exceedingly rare. Um, Criminal prosecutions um, uh, are very rarely successful. And uh, internal affairs investigations very rarely result in the discipline or termination of an officer. Um, Civil rights suits have the added benefit of the fact that they are driven by the people whose rights have been violated. They don't have to wait for a prosecutor to decide to press charges or an internal investigator to um, decide to investigate the matter. They're they're driven by the people whose rights have been violated um, and who have a very strong incentive to get to the bottom of things and find out the truth. They're also the only current means by which um, compensation can be awarded to people whose rights have been violated. And for both of those reasons, I think that uh, Section 1983 is is a powerful and important tool.
1: If only the majority in Pearson had listened to Wild Bill Douglas. Rather, if only Wild Bill Douglas had listened to Wild Bill Douglas and laid out the case against qualified immunity for public officials in addition to judges.
0: Perhaps Section 1983 would be better music to civil rights litigants' ears.
1: Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org.
0: And if you enjoyed this episode, please
1: leave us a five-star rating and tell
0: your friends to check out DIST. Boop. 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 (laughs) Sorry, <laughs> That was beautiful. <laughs> that, all that Demi Lovato practice is working.
1: Um, sorry, not sorry.
0: Exactly. Boop. I love the word analogous. Um, analogous. That's a good one. Boop. It simply, it simply concluded that no reasonable...
1: <laughs> I hear you. I hear you, Patreon. It's so hot in here. I have to drink water. Water.
0: Boop this version of section 1983 to this uh, well i don't know the reverse
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry but it was lovely <laughs> that was so lovely <laughs> boop